Amen. Um, well, what you have is an evaluation of Lordship Salvation. And uh, I decided to go ahead and do this thing. And uh, G2 asked about doing some um, bullet points on... Uh, oh, did Jesus mention the name of Obama as the Antichrist or something? And so it kind of hit me, well, why not do some bullet points on some other things that we need to do? The problem is that these are 50 caliber bullets by the time they got done, and they're not done growing yet. I thought I was going to have a few points here to deal with. We're not going to cover it all tonight. There's no way to do it. So the question is, how do we do this, and how do we, uh, how do we honestly take a look at this and figure out how to minister to people? And it's not... Theologians just like to argue. A lot of them just like to argue theological points, and they do that, and they've been doing that for what? For millennia? They've been arguing about these things? And so the question is, and what we, what we must do, is figure out how to discuss things and how to bring them up uh, as, we, as we look at different viewpoints that float around in this day and time. Um, and we're going to ask and try and answer, is this a damaging viewpoint and potentially a very damaging viewpoint? Is it or is it not? So what do we look at and how do we look at it fairly? Uh, so far, we're going to do the introduction and then the definition of what is meant by lordship salvation. Has anybody in here not heard of the term lordship salvation? I think everybody pretty well has. And we're going to see what it actually means because it's a term that sometimes people throw around. They don't know what's being said or what, what it is talking about. We're going to look at the theological foundation of where this position comes from and then we're going to evaluate the elements of that theological uh, foundation. We're going to look at some hermeneutical problems and issues that uh, concern that and then the limited perspective of where this really leads and, and what, are, what, are the, what are the dangers of this thing. Uh, George Barna, as many of you have heard of, he's a researcher, a Christian researcher primarily, trying to find out what the pulse is of America on a consistent basis. So he does like the Gallup poll, only he does the Barna polls and, and uh, gathers statistics to try and find out where we are. Now, he's, he seems to be very good at analyzing uh, where the culture is at any point in time. Now, may not agree with his solutions to those problems all the time, but he is good at analyzing the, the problems. This is his findings from his surveys of 2009. The first theme is that increasingly Americans are more interested in faith and spirituality than in Christianity. So there's been somewhat of a reaction to traditional Christianity. And, uh, you know, some of it is, is probably a, a good reaction to have. But there should be a response to it rather than a reaction to it. And um, actually people, he says, are becoming more religious. That means that they are hanging on to their belief systems all the more. And this is, this is what he is finding out. The second theme is that faith in the American context is now individual and customized. Americans are comfortable with an altered spiritual experience 
as long as they can participate in the shaping of that faith experience. Now, this is okay in the sense of the need of personal participation. In other words, the faith I have might influence the faith you have, but you're not going to really know God with it apart from your own personal faith. Now, that's a, that's a good uh, thing to recognize. But when it's a faith experience and it's all about faith and not about the object of the faith and not, and, and not having a standard by which to go because the bulk of Americans have rejected the Word of God, the Bible, as the, as the Holy Scripture, then what they end up with is a very mystical thing. They end up with a lot of attitudes and ideas that are built on feelings more than actually what God's Word has to say. So what he's saying here, it's, it's individual, it's customized, everybody's developing their own faith system instead of adhering to the creeds of the church, that which has been defined uh, since the apostolic creeds and even before that as these are essential elements of the faith. Um, the third theme is that biblical literacy is neither a current reality nor a goal in the United States. Now, you might remember a couple of years ago, one of his findings was that people don't know what they believe. They go to a church, they don't know what they believe. And some of the biggest churches here in town, I, I, can, I can almost assure you that 90% of the people that go there don't know their doctrinal statement or their statement of faith and what they profess to believe. They don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. They don't know what's important in life, and they're not able to share it with somebody else. And so those are the things that we've looked at before uh, in the past, and this is the new findings, the new four points in a, in a prayer here that Barna's come out with. Here's the underlying problem. Uh, <clears throat> people don't believe the Bible to be totally, completely, in soul inspired Word of God. They are either detracting from it or they are adding to it. And God says you don't have that privilege as a human being to do that. You have the inspired Word of God. He has sealed, up, sealed it up and He said, this is the tool that you are to work with. That's what you're supposed to work with. So most of the people... And the United States don't believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God anymore. That's the underly whole underlying problem. Now, <clears throat> we are clearly people who believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is inerrant in the original autograph that the copies that have been made of it, there's so, really so few mistakes that it is not an issue theologically. So... <clears throat> um, I believe if the Lord tarries that we're going to be much more needed because people are going to find out their faith systems don't work. They're designer drugs, so to speak, because that's in effect what they are. They're designer drugs. When you develop your own system of faith and your own system of mysticism that you can feel good and you can get high with, it is nothing more than a spiritual designer drug. That's all it is. Now, <clears throat> the fourth theme is that the effective and me periodic measurement of spirituality conducted personally or through a church 
is not common at this time. It's not likely to become common in the near future. This is another way of saying that churches don't point out what is sin and what is not sin. And they don't call people, if, if the church is not teaching what is sin and what is not sin, then they're not calling people to evaluate whether or not they're still involved in a life of sin. If a pastor never points out what is arrogance and what comprises it and how you identify it, then people just go on their merry way. Now, they may anyway. They may know all about it and choose to not do anything about it. But the the problem is whenever people don't stop and measure, when you partake of the Lord's table and don't consider sin and the process before you partake, then there's there's a problem and a great potential problem that is there. Some of the pastors they surveyed... It's interesting, they said there's no solid way to measure spiritual growth. Well, there is a solid way to measure. If you throw this out, though, there is no solid way to measure spiritual growth. And if you don't want to teach it to the people that come so as to not to offend anybody, then how are they ever going to measure spiritual growth, whether they're growing or not? Most of the pastors surveyed were appalled at the immaturity of the Christians in their church. But sadly, many of them have helped make it that way or keep it that way. So the, the question is, you know, here, here are these findings. So what, what are we going to, to do about it? Where does lordship fall into this and how does it affect other people? Now, the lordship crowd, there, we have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the theology known as lordship salvation. I am of a position called free grace, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. So if if they are brothers and sisters, if they're really believers, are they saved? That's the question that we're going to ask. Are they saved? Well, many, many of them are. There's no question about it. Many people who have held to this position that we're going to talk about, which is TULIP, many people uh, have been saved throughout the history of the church. Many of them wrote, not many of them, but most of the commentaries that are viewed as standards of the church were written by people who were of covenant theology, which is a a branch of... um, it's, the, the two are intermeshed. They both have the same foundation of theology. The only difference is covenant theology is not dispensational. Lordship theology is dispensational. That's about, in a nutshell, that's the, the biggest difference between the two. Now, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, then correction should be done with grace. Okay? We, don't, we don't come and get in their face. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The Lord dealt first with people very gently and very clearly and very accurately. Yet he did not ever shy away from speaking the truth in love. So he, the Lord is a perfect balance of grace and truth. And that's what the real position is, whatever that is. It's got to be a perfect balance of, of grace and truth. Now, <clears throat> sometimes, and especially in this society... Even the simple presentation of facts doesn't come across as gracious. When you just start giving data or giving verses, people say, well, that's not very gracious. Okay, why? Because it says, well, that's a sin. 
Well, um, okay, so it is. In our age of political correctness, anytime the failures of another person are pointed out, the one that points out the failures become the bad guys. Whether it's involving terrorists, homosexuals, dishonest people, immoral people, whatever it is. Whenever that is pointed out, then the person that points it out, they're the bad guy for pointing it out. And it's not the, the problem is not the sin. It's the problem becomes pointing out the sin. For the under-shepherd to fail to point out a violation of truth, though, is a rejection of his assignment. Any person put in a position of leadership in the church is called to do it, to point out whenever things are... Uh, are out of line. How do we know that? Acts chapter 20. When Paul's writing the Ephesian elders in verse 28 through 31, he says, savage wolves will arise up from among your own selves. Okay? You're supposed to point them out. Also, uh, it goes so far as to indicate that when we uh, just accept and embrace error, then it's a mark of disobedience. Because we're called in Ephesians 5, 11 and 12 to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That's what we are called to do. Now, we need to seek the balance of grace and of truth trying to follow the model of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not really loving to fail to point out error. So, an attempt is going to be made to accurately present the facts concerning the movement today known as Lordship Salvation. There's a catchphrase used frequently, and you probably heard it. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Has anybody ever heard that? If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. That's kind of their catchphrase. Okay? It's kind of the marker of the, of the movement. Then the invitation is made when they give a gospel presentation they say that you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life in order to be saved okay that's their gospel presentation oftentimes in fairness the invitation seems to be attached to a clear presentation of the gospel which is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins was buried he rose again on the third day and they oftentimes present that, and when a person makes that decision to believe, then they, uh, uh, they're saved. You make that decision. The gospel is presented. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. Do you believe that? Okay? You've made the decision. You're saved. Okay? That's what the gospel is all about. And oftentimes, before they ever get to the make him Lord of all your life thing, Okay, they've already presented the gospel and people have already believed. So we have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of what is called Lordship Salvation. One of the interesting things is that they are some of the few people left that believe this to be the complete inspired total Word of God. Now, not all of them, but there are some of the few that are, that are left who, who do that. Now... <clears throat> These people have accepted the message 
by grace through faith. Now, the advocates or adherents to Lordship Salvation don't stop there. And then they add, and sometimes a lot later, sometimes in special classes, sometimes in teaching things, that the evidence of your salvation is the production of spiritual fruit. And if you're not producing this fruit, then you're not really saved. That's what they say. In practical terms, this means that real believers have conquered sin because Jesus is Lord of their life and all their production of fruit has conquered sin, and that they're producing a fruit that is visible, that's what they hold to, and open to evaluation by other people. So what you end up with is a group of fruit inspectors. Okay, <clears throat> They're going to tell you whether or not you're saved, is basically what it amounts to. Now, how do you minister to people like this? It's kind of like when we, when we did a study years back on cults. The question is not just to identify them. The question is how do we go about ministering to them? How do we try and reach out to other people and, and help them? One of the best ways to help people is to ask questions for which you have solid biblical answers. Okay, So there's this other side of the coin here. If we're going to minister to people, we need to know what we're talking about before we start asking these questions. Because one of the things about the Lordship people is frequently they have some schooling and education in biblical things. Frequently they know quite a bit about the Bible. Okay? <clears throat> but the problem is that they have taken only a piece of the verses that they, that they want to develop their model, their theological model. And they have left out a lot of things is my, my contention. Now... <clears throat> Why do we even bother with this? Why do we, we bother to learn how to go about ministering? Lordship theology that's driving an immature believer often leads to arrogance, first of all. Because they think they know more than anybody else because they've had some Bible training. And then... And I'll show you as we go through there, it will lead to fatalism and to despair. That will be one of the conclusions. No. But their theology is inconsistent. And that's the biggest part of their problem. Because make him Lord of all. I, when I first heard of Lordship Salvation, I thought it was from Arminian theology which basically says you can lose your salvation. And that would almost seem fitting, that if, if you didn't make Him Lord of your whole life, then you, you lost your salvation. If you stopped making Him Lord of your life, then you weren't saved. If you were making Him Lord of all your life, then, then, then you were saved. Okay, you, you made Him Lord of all, you're saved. You stopped making Him Lord of all, you weren't saved anymore. That would be consistent with Arminian theology, at, at least. This doesn't come from Arminian theology. And see, that's the first part of the, the inconsistency of it. 
what will happen is that you they will consider you who don't believe the way they do as uninformed and uninlightened. And that's the way you'll be, be viewed. So if you begin a conversation or find yourself in a conversation with someone like this, don't get defensive, okay? Because oftentimes they're taught to attack and maim. Okay, so you just you back off, okay, and just ask questions and let them talk. Now <clears throat> They find it difficult to believe that anybody can know this information and actually reject it. So after they get done enlightening you and you ask them questions, they're going to find it hard to believe that you just haven't just embraced it along with the rest of them. But, uh, you know, obviously those people who are not elect are not going to accept it. (laughs) They can't accept it. Now, the view actually began during the Reformation. Okay, we got an idea when the Reformation began? 1500, 1517. Martin Luther pretty well led the Reformation. He was the one that nailed the 95 objections to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. But that had been building for a couple of hundred years. Luther and his, Luther was kind of the practical guy. Calvin was more the theologian that developed the theology of the Reformation. Now, the Reformation means just what the word means. Okay, They were there to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Not to change it, not to separate from it. Excuse me, to change it. Not to separate from it, but to reform it. The reason is because Luther went to Rome. They were buying and selling indulgences at that point in time, meaning if you had enough money, you could do any sin you wanted to do and still get into heaven. Okay, They were buying and selling those things on the street corners, and they were doing it like carnival carnival barkers. So when Luther came back, he was thoroughly disgusted with what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. So this was designed to keep most of Catholic theology, but to change the immorality. Now, this whole thing concerns the age-old question, can a person still be involved in a life of sin and be saved? That's a question that people have been asking for centuries. Can a person who is saved still be involved in a life of sin? For now... A quick answer is look at the church at Corinth. Okay, It's about as decadent as you can possibly get in the church at Corinth. And yet in chapter 1, verse 2, they're called saints. And I've talked about that many times. While I was thinking about this, putting this together, uh, if we looked at the rest of the New Testament epistles that were written to churches, they were written to gatherings of believers... Every one of them has some kind of recognition and a challenge because they weren't producing the right fruit. Galatians. What had happened? The circumcision party had entered into it. John. First John. What was there? The Gnostics had infiltrated the church. If you look at almost every epistle found in the New Testament, including those in the book of Revelation... 
They're being written to straighten out a problem inside the church. And nowhere does it say, be saved again. Okay? They're written to straighten out a problem. So there's not any fruit in certain areas. In a couple of those churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, you find a real mess in the church in the letters to, in, in the book of Revelation. Now, a question, if you run into a person like this, an opening question is, can you explain to me what you mean by the statement, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all? Then you get them get them talking. They'll use a statement. They'll use some statements maybe that are similar to that. Don't have to be word for word. But what they will do then is let you know how much they know and how deep they are into this theology. Because one thing you don't need to do is bury them in deep water of deep theology if they've just picked it up and somebody at their church said it and they don't have a clue what this is all about. Okay, You just show them... And it's, they, they taught us this in sales school a long time ago. People might say no 40 times, but the first time they say yes, hear it and shut up. Okay, It's kind of the same thing. You're not there to teach them all the realm of theology in one sitting. Okay? But this, this, this Lordship salvation, I, I haven't hardly run into anybody who believes that, that is humble of spirit, or, or that, um, well, is not afraid of life almost. I've run into a couple, but not hardly anybody else. Well, that's, that's, I'll show you. I'll show you. How would most of them answer that question? If he is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And what they would say is that he, most of them would say that um, I just have to make him Lord of all my life. They just repeat what, what that says. They, they really can't go any deeper than that. Um, it's kind of... Um, there's another phrase floating around that's that's used frequently like that. And if you stop and, you know, faith without works is dead, but there is no work with it. I, I get that one all bottled up. But what they're saying is um, that, he, that he has to be Lord of all. That's what, they're being, that's what they're promoting. And so, you know, you could even ask them from there, would, is he Lord of all your life? Because this is the this is the catchphrase of this this thing. You have to make him Lord of you have to make him all of Lord of all your life. Now <clears throat> this poses a serious problem with the theology this is growing out of. To even have a statement like this. The second part of this is is Wikipedia defining the terms. And I and I quoted I just copied it out of the online encyclopedia, Wikipedia. Lordship salvation is a teaching in Christian theology which maintains that good works are a necessary consequence of being declared righteous before God. In other words, Jesus cannot be considered a person's Savior, that is, the bringer of salvation, without simultaneously being Lord of the person's life 
which is demonstrated by the gradual purification from sin and the exercising of good works. For instance, the caring for widows and orphans. This teaching is advocated in many of the creeds of Protestantism, but is not universally accepted. Advocates and opponents of the doctrine within Protestantism all agree that justification before God is through faith alone by grace alone. If you're talking to one one of these folks, they will tell you that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. Okay? The problem is different definitions. They're talking about different things. But they differ on whether true salvation can ever be followed by leading a worldly life or uh, even apostasy. The opposing position is called free grace theology. So in going through this, I'm going to try and point out the free grace position and then explain why. So we'll not only know what we believe, we'll know why we believe it. And hopefully by the time we get done, we'll be able to tell somebody. Yes. Yes, this this thing right here, down to the uh, phrase antinomian, that whole thing is um, qu- is copied directly out of Wikipedia. When they sin, uh, well, yeah, they they'll admit that they sin. Okay. But it has no bearing on anything. Almost. The, 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 the whole... We'll see the whole theological system. It shoots itself in the foot. Is, is the problem with it. We'll, we'll see as we go through it. Mario. Right. Well, um, see, the, the, one of the things that gets me is that David absolutely blows this to pieces. I mean, there there is no way you can hold to lordship salvation because salvation has been the same. Okay? Up to the cross, they look to the cross, and from the cross, we look back. Okay? But it's always been about somebody else paying for your sins. Okay? As, it, as the gospel, it's called eternal gospel in Revelation 14.6. So the gospel has always been the same. It's always, but one's looking forward and the other one's looking backwards. Yes? It's, it's reactionary that started with the Reformation with Luther's view of the Roman Catholic Church. And he looked at them and said, none of them were saved. Okay? Because their fruit wasn't in keeping with good things. Most would not. Most don't have, most don't have a clue where they're coming from. Yes, that's what it is.
and that that's that's where we're going here because that this is the i'm not making any of this stuff up you don't need to it's all through their writings uh, <clears throat> the uh, free grace theology man, maintains that the lordship salvation view is marked by legalism and a lack of graciousness after all they're the elect because they have the fruit to go with it in particular free grace theology claims that the lordship position is fixated on the works-minded gospel of matthew while overlooking the grace-minded gospel of john now i'm not sure that that's really what free grace theology um, says but in some circles i'm sure it is an in-between position also exists which asserts that the lordship salvation view is legalist and the free grace theology is antinomian meaning lawless okay so somewhere there's supposed to be something in in the middle my personal belief is that too many scholars of today spend too much time in commentaries and too little time in the scripture they need to stop quoting luther and owens and Bunyan and all those guys and get their nose out of the commentaries and get it back into the scripture and I've been studying the scripture for a long time and studying it from the original languages I went back through Ephesians 2 today and the depth of what I saw today is is amazing and I don't know how many times I've been through uh, Ephesians especially chapter 2 we went through one of our seminary assignments to go through Ephesians 2 we thought we had said the final word on it didn't we Mario when we got done on Ephesians 2 and I saw things in there that just oh and how did I ever miss this before it didn't change anything that I that I was looking at but it made it stronger it actually made it stronger and it made it clearer and it's it's one of those things that that uh, we'll get a little deep by the time we get done with this because I'm going to show you what it is it's too too neat not to know it and you'll you'll you can pray that I can communicate it in a way that you can understand it. <laughs> but um, many of the quotations they use to prove their presuppositions are quoted from men and not from the Word of God. And there's book after book after book that is out there. So um, the question I would ask somebody that says that they're Lordship, what do you mean by... If he's not Lord at all, uh, Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. What do you, what do you mean by that? And get them to talk, and you'll find out how much they know and how much they don't know. Then you can ask them another question. What's the underlying theology of Lordship Salvation? Can you tell me what the, what the base is for it? Where does it come from? Why would you make a statement if he's not Lord of all, that he's not Lord at all? Why, why would you do that? Nope. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. They come out of James 2 with that, that Abraham was justified by works. And um, James 2, that's not one of their main passages, but that's part of what, that's part of what they do. That's part of where they go to. I'll show you several of their passages. I'm not afraid of their passages they're afraid of mine but I'm not afraid of theirs when, when I was with the uh, uh, seminary students in India I said and I had two hours with them I said 
I want to show you guys something. If you'll grab hold of this, it will clear up so many questions of Scripture. And it was phase one, phase two, and phase three. If you'll realize phase one is a point in time that seals your salvation that you can never, ever lose again. And phase two is about a process that is the journey of your life from then on. It's the Christian walk. And you will make the distinction between those two and realize that they're there, then passage after passage after passage will clear up for you. Now, <clears throat> Lordship takes a handful of verses out of context, and I'll show you where they are, out of context, and they, they put together this theology. Now, I don't really fault Luther and Calvin, uh, Milton, Bunyan. Those guys, with what they had, did marvelous work. They did. These guys were students of the Word of God. But they don't push a button and, and get what I get in a printout on the computer today. Okay? By digging it all out, they learned a whole lot. But they're not able to memorize the whole Bible and do an instant concordance in their head. And I can do a concordance search that fast. They don't have the tools. They, at that point in time, did not even know the Greek was the uh, Koine Greek. They thought it was a special Holy Spirit language because it was so different from classical Greek and the uh, Macedonian Greek, they, they didn't really understand it was the language of the people when they did this until the 1800s. Then they came to realize it's just the street language, you know, the common language of the people, what they spoke. Yeah. Now, the, 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 the point I want to make is progressive revelation. Okay? The Bible progressively reveals things on a given topic like the seed of the woman. We've covered, covered that many times. Well, you have also a progressive illumination when people are starting to study the Bible anew. Okay? And move away from the allegorical interpretation that, that uh, the Jews got into before Christ, the Jewish mystics got into it. And then, after we cleared that out, so to speak, the New Testament was written, the historical books were written, and then we end up with, with people like Origen that comes, comes through, and he is taking the Jewish mysticism back into the Christian church and starting to read the Scriptures mystically and allegorically, and then Augustine did the same thing. Okay, so out of that, and then Jerome of the Vulgate and the Latin Vulgate, and people for centuries thought the Vulgate was the inspired Word of God. Excuse me, four centuries after the, the, the Greek New Testament was closed, somebody comes along with the inspired Word of God, and then you get the majority text people that think the King James was the inspired Word of God. I mean, they, they, you got to... A mixture in there. So what happens is, what, what are you going to do if you start to develop a new theology? You're going to try and get the corner pins, right? You're going to try and piece some things together. And you, you, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to put the model together that had been buried for a thousand years. That's what Luther and Calvin and those guys were trying to do. And Calvin did an amazing work when he was 26 years old. 
to write his institutes and try to put together this 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 new new theology, so to speak. And what he did was take passages and he goes, Well, golly, we're predestined for this. We're predestined oh, how does this work with predestined? How does this work with, with this passage over here? And he develops this model out of pieces of passages. What I'm saying is they just couldn't do it as fast as we did. And that's even when was the first printing press 1611 they worked for a hundred years on this stuff calvin was dead luther was dead they were already dead before there was a, a printed copy to work with so you know what i'm saying is i i've got this here how far advanced was this what would luther and calvin have given for one of these see so that you have progressive illumination as well uh <clears throat> Anyway, that I think they did a marvelous job, and I think had they had the other tools, they'd have made corrections all over the place. Then their disciples took this, and they started studying Luther, and they started studying Calvin, and they started saying, Calvin said, Luther said, John Wesley said, he was the Arminian in the batch, okay? And they started quoting their mentors instead of studying the Scriptures, well, my mentor said it means this, so therefore it must mean this. And they lost, I believe they lost sight of some things. And the stuff that's written today, the five points of Calvinism defined and defended, was a book I got in the early 1980s sometime. It's about that thick, and it pretty well has defined exactly where Calvinism is today, which Calvin would not have, I don't believe Calvin would have signed off on that okay but see they have been illuminated to the point Calvin actually taught there was no such thing as limited atonement <laughs> but that's one of their tenets right now um, anyway what's the underlying theology lordship salvation is promoted by those whose foundational theology is Calvinistic and they follow the acrostic tulip now I've written out tulip for you. I guess we brought this up here. I need to use it for something. I didn't get as far as I thought I would tonight. The T is total depravity. Now, total depravity means to them that mankind is so totally depraved. This is their definition. Okay? That they cannot even have the faith to be saved apart from divine intervention. Free grace says we can't save ourselves. We are depraved. We can't save ourselves. It cannot be done. But total depravity in the mind of a modern Calvinist, okay, which is where their training is right now, is you can't, you're so depraved, we're so behind the eight ball, we cannot even have the faith to be saved. That's because lordship grows from this yeah well the lordship comes out of the P okay and they'll state that you have to have faith in Christ grace alone faith alone in Christ alone huh What? God gives you the faith. What happens is, 
and this is kind of jumping ahead, but we're going to cover it in more detail. <clears throat> you are, I guess, SD, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.5. Ephesians 2.1, 2.5 is their hinge pin verses on this. While you were dead, necros, in your trespasses and sins. Okay? He made you alive. 2.5 is the word. It's only used there and Colossians 2.13 is the only two places the word made you alive is used. And what they say is, is that you are so dead. Can a dead person believe? And they use the analogy of physical death. No. <laughs> a dead body can't believe. Okay? So they connect that in their thinking to spiritual death. If you're spiritually dead, you can't believe. But if you're elect, if God chose Gwen, okay, to be elect, and Gwen was spiritually dead, and she couldn't believe at all, but if she was elect, the Holy Spirit would make her alive so that she could believe. Yes? Yes. Well, they would most. What I'm saying is, most of them don't know the underlying, the underlying theology that that grows out of. Perseverance of the saints is where they get lordship salvation, which says you have to make him lord of your life, and yet their underlying theology says you can't do it. It's impossible for you to make him lord of your life. In a sense. So total depravity by the, the definition, because this, this whole structure, okay, and they, they don't talk, that's what I'm saying, they don't talk about this. John MacArthur, that's why I freaked out almost when I heard that they were five-point Calvinists. I said, I can't believe it. John MacArthur is a five-point card-carrying Calvinist. That, that's what he is. Okay? He is the chief proponent today. So is John Piper. So is R.C. Sproul. Yeah. They're Calvinists who have dropped the term Calvinism because it got a bad name. They picked up perseverance of the saints because they saw people who said they were Christians and they were living sinful lives. And so they developed this thing to try and convince people they weren't saved. Yeah. Out of perseverance of the saints, is, you know, if you believe, if you have the faith, but God gives you the faith, and He's only going to give you the faith if you're elect. Okay? What it's saying is you're calling, you're giving an invitation to people that if they're not divinely selected and appointed by God and made alive by the Spirit of God, they can't possibly do it. They can't possibly believe. And by the same token, if you are elect, you won't do anything but produce fruit. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If you're elect, you're going to produce fruit. You have no, you, you've got a choice, maybe in the different kinds of fruit, but you're going to produce fruit. 
the thief on the cross didn't have a lot to produce, but that's another deal. That's why they go to dispensations, because <laughs> they can put him in another dispensation and say, well, that's only for this dispensation. It's a big, it's a big word game. But total depravity, these are the passages that they look at. And we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at those. Total depravity. <clears throat> there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seek after God. Okay? These are the, the this Romans 3 passage is the passage that they use along with Romans 3.23, which we have no argument with. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Ephesians 2.5, which is this passage about you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay? And that, to answer that, requires an exegetical breakdown of about four passages. You have to look at it exegetically. If you got that deep, but I'm saying you don't need to get that deep because you start talking to somebody about all this stuff when they haven't brought it up, you have just lost them. Okay? Anyway. <clears throat> Unconditional election. This is total depravity. Unconditional election. And again, most people, I would say many people that that buy Lordship Salvation, they do it because it sounds good and they don't know that it's being driven by this. They don't know what's driving it. Okay? <clears throat> Unconditional election says that it is the sovereign choice of God um, and that's it. Okay? You're chosen. And the, there, there's the passages that they use that speak about election and predestination. Limited atonement. <clears throat> is defined is is used that <clears throat> God chose who would be saved. And limited atonement says Jesus Christ only paid for the sins of the elect. That's what limited atonement means. And that comes from Matthew twenty twenty eight that he gave himself to be a ransom for the many. I've been in conversations with people who who buy this and they keep going, the many, the many, the many. I said, the many doesn't exclude the all. The many is referring to Israel. If you look at it in context, gave himself a ransom for the many and he's frequently referred to Israel as the many. They're in the book of Matthew and other parts of the Bible. So... <clears throat> that doesn't mean that his atonement was limited. First John 2, 1 and 2 actually says that he's a propitiation for sins for the whole world. Now, <clears throat> the eye is irresistible grace. And where does irresistible grace come in? It, it grows out of this. You're so depraved that you can't possibly believe for yourself. So if you're elect, God makes you alive, okay? And then He absolutely pounds you with that grace because it's irresistible. You can't say no to it. If you're elect, you cannot say no to Scripture. And a lot of this connects into the angelic conflict. It connects into the fact that He wrote the names uh, in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And actually, they feel like they're going to have that God's got to stack the deck to bring it about. Is what it what it looks like. 
Now, <clears throat> and uh, the uh, Romans nine nineteen, a familiar passage. Who, who resists his will? Is a question that's asked there. Who resists his will? And then <clears throat> P is the perseverance of the saints. And this means that those who are truly saints will persevere to the end. Hmm. They'll persevere to the end, producing visible fruit as evidence of their salvation. Perseverance of the saints comes from Revelation 13.10 and 14.12. Now we know a little bit about the book of Revelation, hopefully. This came back whenever they viewed, most of them viewed, the whole book of Revelation as allegorical. Calvin wouldn't write a commentary on it. They didn't want anything to do with it. One of the big reasons is it's got a lot about Israel in it and there wasn't any Israel. So how are they going to make this relevant to their day and time? And they made it relevant by <clears throat> by uh, allegorizing it and saying it was being fulfilled at all the time at all points of history in different ways and in different areas. It wouldn't come to a final climax of literal fulfillment. That's how they, they viewed this. That's where, what, how covenant theology still views the book of Revelation. They call it a historicist position. Revelation 13, 10, 14, 12 is right in the middle of the tribulation. It's speaking to tribulational saints. Okay? But they don't view that as applicable to the seven-year time span. They view that as applicable to the entirety of the church age. And that's where the perseverance of the saints came from. Now, <clears throat> if you were to state this another way, now I tried to put all five of these things together. <clears throat> Man is so totally depraved that only by the sovereign selection of God can he be saved since Jesus Christ died only for those selected in eternity past. To accomplish this, the Holy Spirit will make only the elect alive so that they may have faith. If one is selected as one of the elect, then God's grace becomes irresistible. And because it is impossible for the elect to resist, none of the elect will fail to believe. Man has no real choice on whether or not to accept the gift of salvation because God will force his selected ones to choose for him and thus be saved. One can only know if they are divinely selected as elect if a sanctified perseverance exists to the end of life. By turning one's back on sin and producing fruit in accordance with the salvation as defined by other people who have decided that they are elect because of their fruit because according to them, no one really knows who the elect are. Dilusia. That's really what this is saying. That's why they're afraid. Yep. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. What? No, they don't make any. They 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 say that God foreordained this. Okay, He foreordained this in eternity past, and this is the way it's going to come out. Now they make that statement, and they take His omniscience out of it, and say the only way He can do that is through His omnipotence. The only way that He can bring about the end from the beginning and lay it all out is through His omnipotence. Okay. <clears throat> My argument is their God is too small, which is exactly what they say of me. Okay? I believe that God can lay out the end from the beginning because of his omniscience. He can influence history, okay? but he's not the one that makes the decisions for us. I mean, I've got an example of Balaam. Balaam wanted to put a curse on Israel so he'd get paid more money. He opened his mouth and God overruled his action, not his volition, because his mindset was still to curse Israel. And he was upset when it didn't happen. <clears throat> so God overruled an action, but he didn't overrule the volition. The volition is something that not even the demons can take control of, and God chooses not to. See, they'll say, well, isn't God strong enough? I said, That's not the issue. It said he chose not to. Does he not have volition? The, the the things that, that are accused of... This is... To me, I agree with you, Dan. It's sick. It's nauseating. It drives me crazy. And people hold to this. And sadly, they're underlying a lot of theology today. Yeah. <clears throat> They are, it's coming right out of the same thing. Yeah. I agree. There are. And some of them, even though they've been to Dallas Seminary, didn't understand what they were saying. And the Lordship, the Lordship position sounds good. Okay, and a lot of Baptists told of that. Baptists are Calvinistic. Their underlying theology is Calvinistic. Of a different, of a different realm. Because the whole doctrine of eternal security, that phrase is Calvinistic in scope. Well, you were elect in eternity past is where that came from. But if you don't produce the fruit, well, <clears throat> it's they don't it's one of those things that's not, not taught. I'm saying it it's it's interconnected. 
And there are varying degrees. Some of them don't really believe in total depravity, and some of them may reject a part of this. But what I'm saying is that this this lordship comes out of this position today is led by John MacArthur. The the chief proponents of lordship are five point Calvinists. That could very well be. It's it's kind of like it, it, trying to nail jello to a wall sometimes when you're trying to figure out just what somebody's saying because I, I have talked to five-point Calvinists that say faith alone and Christ alone is what's saved, but God gives you the faith. Okay, Some even go as far as to say the Holy Spirit believes for you because you can't even believe. I, and I've, I, I've talked to people that actually believe this and had serious discussions with them like jimmy said we ran into some of them that you know they were you're either elect or you're not elect but and then look right at you and go do you know who the elect are well i can tell you who the elect are if they've accepted jesus christ as their savior that he died for their sins buried and rose again on third day they're elect well no they're not that's man's choice, not God's. I mean, these are the stuff that goes back and forth with them, and it's just like, where's your thinking in this thing? Because if they didn't have perseverance of the saints, there wouldn't be anybody in church. There wouldn't be anybody. Why? Okay. This is this leads to fatalism. Okay. <clears throat> and sadly, my grandpa John Calvin Freeman was a fatalist. Fatalist says it doesn't <clears throat> that anything I do doesn't make any difference. Okay. Exact words. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell, and the rest of it don't make any difference. Okay. That's where it leads. Now, what if you're not producing enough fruit? Okay, you're in a church. You're going to a lordship church. You're not producing enough fruit. By their standards, your standards, or whatever it is. We'll go. <clears throat> you're not producing enough fruit. You're not doing the right thing. You're not tithing. You're not, I mean, whatever it is, whatever thing they want to put on this thing, you're not doing it. If you're not elect, you never can. Think about that. If you're not elect, you never can. You can't make him Lord of your life if you're not elect. So why are they even telling people to make people the Lord of your life? Because it's all been predetermined. I mean, the, 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 the system is so amazingly flawed. We're going to look through it some more because then you ask, how much fruit? What kind of fruit? If you, if you want to play the game, give me a list. And you end up with a very legalistic list only so I can prove to me whether or not I'm saved. Their assurance of salvation, see, is 
If you produce enough of the right kind in the right way, then that's proof that you're saved. Okay? They're obviously the ones that are already doing all the fruit. Or they're the ones that are not doing the fruit who have appointed themselves inspectors. And that's usually what it is. <clears throat> well, we're going we're gonna to look at it. And I know that uh, when I get done with this, and get, uh, I'm going to give you all my notes. So that's why you just got a handful of stuff here. This is so you can... Try and listen and make some notes on your own, and and uh, then I'm gonna give give you everything that's that I have here, and you'll have all these little comments and footnotes, and not all of them because I didn't read this off tonight, but <clears throat> a lot of what was said, like man is so totally depraved that he can't even believe for himself. That is the position of the five point Calvinist today. But a lot of them don't even want the name. And sadly, I have seen it taught that they're to go into churches and infiltrate them and then move in with Lordship Salvation. I saw it done in Fredericksburg Bible Church, Fredericksburg, Texas. And they hired a guy, and Dan Hawkins was there, and Dan said, he's Lordship, guys. And they said, no, he's not. Six months later, they had to get rid of him. Because he was. And it's, you know, and you ask him point blank, well, uh, no, or then they've got another explanation out around it. And it, they're taught to infiltrate, and that's sad. Yep. And, it, and it's sad because it's... Uh, <clears throat> an Armenian, and I'm, this is the final, an Armenian that believes you can lose your salvation over a mental attitude sin. That's a five point Ar Armenian, I guess we'll call them. <clears throat> Have no assurance of their salvation. Always wonder if they're good enough to get into heaven. Their life is a life of fear. A person that knows the theology behind this thing always wonders if they're elect. Have they produced enough fruit? Both sides are fear-driven. That's the question I would ask. Where is the assurance of things hoped for? Conviction of things not seen. Where is that, that assurance? Neither one of those positions has it. Neither one of them does. But the Word of God tells us we can have it. So how do we get it? So it tells me... Huh? Yeah. Thief on the cross. I mean, there's so many questions they don't bother to answer. They would just say, you have time. <laughs> Get your checkbook out. <laughs> You've got time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, you can ask them if they know what tulip means because that is the underlying theology of Lordship Salvation whether they realize it or not. That's, that's where it's coming from based on the chief proponents. And then ask, do you believe all of them? I mean, there's some pretty simple questions that you can ask to get them to, to think about these things. Because if they saw what, they, what, what was driving this thing, perseverance of the saints, 
they might just say, well, can you show me a better way? That's what happened to Apollos in the book of Acts, the preacher. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. It's been a good night. Thank you for your amazing word. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for your patience, Father, with your people. And I pray that we would take this and, Father, that we would, we would uh, learn from it. We would know about it. But, Father, I pray every thought and action would be driven by love and a care and a concern for other people. I pray that we would not, too, fall into arrogance and legalism with it. But, Father, we indeed would have the balance of grace and truth as our Lord did. For we ask it in His name. Amen. Without law.